you found a message that was delivered at Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We are praying the time you invest hearing God's Word encourages you in your walk with Jesus and inspires you to share Him with others. If you want to learn more about us or send us a prayer request, visit our website, livingstreamscc.org. Thank you for listening. Turning your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1, and we're going to begin our series called Amazing Love uh, through the book of Hosea. So this, uh, this is a good book, and I'm looking forward to going through it. It is no secret, in church anyway, that God is love. I mean, the, even outside the church, the most well-known Bible verse is, For God so loved the world. Most well-known Bible verse. I didn't grow up being afraid of God. I, I grew up hearing that he was a God of love and he cared about me. And so, you know, as you get to know God and, and you grow in him, and, and I think for believers there's this danger that we face that we would grow accustomed to the love of God. You know, that we, that, we would, that we would grow used to it and that the God's love would just be this, this fact in our lives and then it just kind of fails to have the impact that it should have um, the way, on the way that we live and move and have our being. You know, I, I was thinking, I, I don't want to live like that. You know, I, I don't want to live uh, my life taking the love of God for granted. And not letting it affect the way I live every single day. I don't want to hate my sin because of the broken mess that it makes in my life. I want to hate it because of the breaking that it causes in the heart of God. I don't want to take for granted the love of God. I want to be an answer to Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He said that we would have the power together with all the Lord's saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high is the love of Christ and deep is the love of Christ. And that to know this love that surpasses knowledge and be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I want to know God's love like that. I want to be able to love other people with that kind of love. You know, instead of the kind of love that I can conjure up when I'm feeling it. I want to know God's love that way. I want to be able to sing the song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My King, Has Died For Me. I want to be able to sing that song with true tears of humility and joy flowing from my eyes. I want my repentance in my life to be motivated by godly sorrow. I want my pursuit of holiness to be motivated by an authentic worship of the God who loves me with an amazing love. I want God's love to be amazing. Not just amazing as an adjective that I throw on there to describe the weather. You know what I'm saying? It is those desires that have led me to the book of Hosea. And I've got some hopes. Some hopes that as we look at this unfamiliar poetry from this prophet. That the Holy Spirit will stir in us. And we will experience this passionate 
love of God that is persistent, dedicated, and committed, steadfast, that never leaves us. And if we would experience that, if we would, if that would happen, we could expect some things in our life. We could expect a fresh repentance from the way that we live. We could expect a new passion for God's love. And we could expect a real revival in our lives. You want any of that? I really believe, I really believe we have an opportunity for that to happen as we start the year together. Wouldn't that just be amazing? Well, if it's going to happen, we definitely need God's help for it, for it to happen. So let's pray together and ask him to move among us. Father God, we come to you the, this day. We're thankful, thankful for a new year uh, that you have given us. Thankful uh, to be together, to um, look at your word and, and to be um, challenged by it, to be moved by it, uh, to, to grow uh, from it. And Lord, we know that for this to happen, your Holy Spirit must be at work in our lives. There's nothing that we bring to the table that can cause us to get where we want to go. To this place where your love is amazing in our lives and we live in awe of that every day. So Holy Spirit, pray that you're, you're uh, active in our hearts, that you are softening us to your presence and to your voice that we might um, sense your conviction and have feet that are quick to run to you. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Hosea, in this first verse of chapter 1, we get the setting for love. The setting for love. Let me read it. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So in that verse, there's not a whole lot about Hosea except his name and his dad's name. You know, where he came from. But we do get his inspiration for writing. It says, God gave him the words to write down about the times and the peoples and the way that they were behaving, the way that they were living under the covenant that they had agreed to uh, with God while they were following Moses. Okay, that's how they were relating to God. And that goes all the way back to Exodus in, in the year 1490 B.C. when the Mosaic Covenant was, was made with God and his, his people. So the list of kings here in verse 1 gives us the ability to sort of put Hosea's writings on the calendar for us. Um, so all those kings listed there reigned uh, throughout most of the 8th century. And so there's four listed there in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now remember, the kingdom of Israel, as it was under David and Solomon, was not the same as it is here. It's split into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom 
of Israel. So we're talking about two kingdoms of, of God's people. And this is the southern kingdom of Judah, beginning with King Uzziah and ending with uh, King Hezekiah. Uzziah began reigning in 791 B.C. And Hezekiah, he ended his reign in 687 B.C. And then the northern kingdom of Israel, just list one king, Jeroboam II, who reigned from 786 to 746 B.C. So Hosea's poetry, it lands on the calendar somewhere from 25 to 40 years of these kings from 760 to 720 B.C. Now, throughout this book of of Hosea, throughout the... Uh, the judgments of God that are listed, the northern kingdom of Israel is kind of the focus or the object of God's judgment. So that that covenant that they entered into uh, back in Exodus, it had blessings to it and it had curses to it. Okay, so if if the people did what God said, if they were true to him, if they followed the Ten Commandments, um, then God would bless them. They could expect blessing. And then if they didn't, then God was going to curse them. Okay, so that was the covenant. It was, it, was, it was a two-sided thing. God had his part. The people had their part. And they all agreed to it. So for roughly 750 to 800 years, the people of Israel, the, God's people, had their ups and downs trying to keep their end of the bargain. And so God would send to them judges. And he would send to them prophets to try to say, hey, you're going the wrong way. You need to turn back to me. And sometimes they would, and, and their, their commitments then lasted just a little while. And most of the time, they just didn't listen to the messengers that God was sending them. Well, Hosea is one of those messengers. He, he comes to the people in a time, and he's saying, hey, look, the end is near. God is, is running out of patience, and your end as a nation is going, to, is going to come to an end because of your rebellion. So the curses... Under that covenant, the Mosaic covenant, they had to do with disease, infertility, and defeat in war. And the longer the people stayed unrepentant, the harder the curses became. Until the final curse, which was exile, where the people ceased to be a people at all. So they lost everything, even God. So that was the end of that covenant. So Hosea, he's writing during the most turbulent times, the most stormy times um, in the northern kingdom of Israel, um, uh, prior to them being taken captive by the Assyrians in 722. So it's, it's really bad politically for, for them. It's the worst political problems they'd ever seen. See, after Jeroboam, the, the king listed here, after him, there were six kings in the next 30 years, and every single one of them was assassinated either by an insider in the kingdom or an outsider in the kingdom. So a lot of uh, political problems going on, you know. Uh, You didn't have a very long, long reign uh, during that time of history. And so so what that made uh, made things happen in the the international world, all of their relations with all the other nations were were just disastrous. So so all they see is that Israel is eating themselves alive from the inside, and they're weakening themselves. And so imagine if you're living in, in Israel and all your leaders are killing each other. And the greatest fear that you have is being conquered by another nation. That's the worst thing that could happen in the ancient world. And so you're sitting duck for that to happen. So as a citizen of the kingdom of Israel, there's no stability. There's no trust. There's no protection. There's no solid ground to stand on. But their political problems were really minor compared to their spiritual problems. Okay, the people, they were taking part in the worship of Baal. 
And he was the weather god, worshipped in neighboring Syria. And it was said that he had control over agriculture and fertility and rainfall and productivity. And since Israel was an agricultural society, Baal became the go-to god to get a blessing from the weather and for the crops and for the yields. And the way that you sought Baal's favor was that you went to one of his shrines and you had sex with a shrine prostitute, believing that Baal was going to treat you likewise when you left and he would bless your crops, he would make them fertile, and you would have good rain and a good yield. And so all of that led to some really perverse behavior in these shrines of Baal. And it made Baalism a pretty attractive alternative to the worship of Yahweh. I mean, the people are like, you know, if our God isn't, we can't count on him to bless our crops, maybe we can go to this other God that seems to be working for them. You know, maybe he'll bless our crops. So we'll go over there and try him out. And besides, it's a lot more fun to worship him than it is the way we were taught to worship our God. So a pretty attractive alternative. Now, this doesn't sound like much of a love story. It sounds more, more like one of those disaster movies. But this is the, the setting that we're given from the history of the Bible. So God's covenant people are habitually unfaithful to him. And God's patience is nearing its end. And they keep ignoring the messengers that God is sending them to tell them to turn around. So it's January 5th, 2020, and our year is about 108 hours old, roughly, give or take. Uh, what, what is the setting for this amazing love story in your life today? What, what is the setting? What kinds of problems are there in your life that may be causing the ground to shake beneath your feet or for you to feel a little bit unstable No solid ground. You know, the problems on your prayer list that God hasn't come up with a solution yet for and, and, and there seems to be solutions elsewhere that you can go to besides God. Maybe it's a financial problem that God has not provided for yet. Uh, maybe it's a it's a health problem that God hasn't healed yet. Maybe an emotional problem that God hasn't comforted. Do you have a job problem? Do you have a love problem in your, in your life? A relational problem? You know, I can only think of one time in my life where I felt like it was problem-free. I was a teenager and I was in Florida. And I was laying on a basketball court looking up at the sky at night. Looking at the stars and, you know, just everything seemed right with the world. No problems. And everything in my world was pretty right. I had a beautiful girlfriend, had a good youth group. And I remember that time because that's the last time in my life I I think it was, you know, I didn't have one kind of problem or another popping up. That's the setting that we live in. We live a life that have problems. This morning we woke up to a car that wouldn't start. Problem. It's just the setting for this amazing love story in our life. What's the setting for you? Now, in verses 2 to 9, we're introduced to the relationships of love. Let's read those verses. When the Lord spoke 
through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will, for, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the people said, call his name, and the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So in these verses, we get a a picture of Hosea's broken family. Uh, God's first command to Hosea was not to go speak his word to somebody. It was to go and get married. Now, marriage, it it is a a big deal for God. Marriage is. I mean, he's the one who came up with the idea of marriage. You know, back in the Garden of Eden. So it's, it's his idea. And it was meant to be this relationship. This one relationship was meant to be what families were built on. What societies were built on. A relationship that is based on, a, on covenant love. On a promise of commitment from one man and one woman to each other for the duration of their lives. That's what it was meant to be. It was also meant to be a picture of Jesus and how he loved the church. You know, two people, a man and a woman, giving themselves to the, to the other for the benefit of the other. That's what it was meant to be. This, in Hosea, this right here is the only time in the Bible it was meant for something else. God used it because he wanted Hosea's wife to be a reflection of his people and how they were treating him. So he said, marry a prostitute and have children of prostitution. Now, I suppose God could have illustrated through Hosea's life the unfaithfulness of his people in any number of ways, through any number of relationships. I mean, he could have chosen a friend of Hosea's and said, you know, he's going to be unfaithful to you. That's how people are treating me. He could have chosen a business partner of Hosea and and had him be unfaithful to him. He could have chosen a child of Hosea who became unfaithful to him. I mean, think of how powerful the prodigal son story is, right? He could have chosen that. But God didn't choose any of those relationships. We really all have an expression of love in them. None of those would do. He needed a relationship that was based on a covenant and a love. And a promise has been made to love him only by his people. And it's been broken. So just like a spouse, you know, whose heart leaves the marriage. And then their, their eyes 
leave the marriage. And then their mind leaves the marriage. And then eventually the body leaves the marriage. We hate, we hate to hear about another marriage dying in divorce. And we just heard of one in our family that's dying. And it breaks our hearts. But, you know, it's, it's just the end of the story. Divorces in a, in a marriage. It's not the whole story. The whole story is there was an emotional drifting somewhere in the past. And if that emotional drift isn't paid attention to, eventually it turns into a physical wandering. And then you throw in the devil's temptations in that kind of marriage and our marriages are sitting ducks for death. Unless, unless we pay attention to it, unless we put the work in to keep our promises to each other. So Hosea's marriage, it could have started out like any other marriage. The text really doesn't force us to to believe or to see that Hosea went and found Gomer on the streets as she was a prostitute. And then he just said, that's the one I'm going to love. It doesn't force us to, it doesn't force us there. God could have been speaking prophetically about his future wife, um, that she would become unfaithful to him, become promiscuous. I mean, he certainly was about the children, you know, who didn't exist when he said, go get a wife. Um, So we don't really want to hear this command that Hosea gets and then see that Hosea's heart wasn't in this marriage. We don't want to see that just because God said, hey, go get married to somebody who's going to be unfaithful. We don't want to think that Hosea was just going through the motions of obedience and uh, to finding Gomer and, and then, you know, saying that's, you know, that's what I'm going to commit to love. All of this is a picture of how God was loving his people, how he had entered into a covenant relationship with them. And you go back and you read about that in Exodus, and there's a joyous celebration. Everybody's all in. You know, we will do what you say, God. You know, it's, it's like, yeah, this is a big moment in the, in the history of our country. We have a God. He's right there. We can see him. He's going to bless us if we do what he says. We're all in. So I really believe that Hosea and Gomer were happy newlyweds. And they had all the dreams and all the hopes that a brand new couple would have of a life together. That's how they started. In verse 3, you find out that Gomer is the lucky girl, and she bears Hosea a son. Now, in verse 4, God tells him to name the boy Jezreel, because in a little while, he was going to punish Israel for the massacre that Jehu had carried out in the valley of Jezreel some 100 years before. Now, remember Jehu? If you came to church last week, you would remember him, because Pastor Shane brought Jehu up, and this is in the title of his message. Here he is again, right here in chapter 1. What's going on here? Well, he's the one who killed both kings of Israel and threw Jezebel out the window. And uh, all of that happened in 2 Kings chapter 9. And and God opened the door for Elijah. He said, go do this. He didn't say how to do it. He just said, go take care of this. In 2 Kings chapter 10, Jehu carries out the massacre of Ahab's household. But it doesn't stop there. And he wipes out King Ahab. I can't ever say the guy's name. I mean, I'm like... Say it, say it. Ahaziah. Ahaziah, thank you. I just can't say it. I don't know why. I mean, I can say it. Par- no, I can't even say that. 
So he wipes out King Ahaziah's house too. And he wasn't told to do that. And so what, what that is, is this awful act of violence that Jehu carried out that became this icon that God would point to because the, the people of Israel didn't leave that those violent ways. And that's, that was the beginning of all those assassinations of all those kings over those 30 years. And it began that you know weakening of Israel and all those political coups and stuff. God wasn't in all of that. And so he was going to punish the nation for that violence. So Hosea's son's name was a prophetic warning to them that they were going to lose their position in the world and cease to be a nation in the valley of Jezreel. And that happened in 733 AD. It began to happen when they lost their first battle against Assyria. And it weakened their defenses and made them a target for future conflict. So we have son Jezreel. In, in verse 6, uh, there's another birth announcement there. But this one's just a little bit different. There is no mention of Hosea there. No mention of a father. So just a hint that Gomer has become unfaithful to her husband. And she's had a, a baby by another man. Nonetheless, God tells Hosea, um, you be a father to that daughter. And you call her no mercy. So it's another warning to the people that he was not going to have mercy on their sins anymore. He was not going to forgive them, forgiving themselves to another lover in the worship of Baal. And he does say that he will show mercy to Judah. Now that is a reflection of what's going on in Judah uh, through King Hezekiah's uh, reign. He did some good things there, bringing reforms to that country. You can read about it in 2 Kings 18, what he did. But it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He got rid of the high places in Israel, all of the idols. He got rid of all of that. And he said, we're just going to look to God alone for his protection and his direction. And God saw that. And since Hezekiah did those things, God was going to miraculously rescue them from their enemies. He wasn't going to use anything but himself to, to, to save them, to save Judah. Now in verse 8, we hear that Gomer has conceived again. And again, no mention of Hosea. God calls him to claim the boy and call him not my people. Not my people. Putting that final edict on his judgments. And his people were now losing their relationship with God. So here's, here's what we need to see in these relationships of love. Everything that God was doing through Hosea was an act of love toward his people. Everything. Now the kids' names, they sound kind of harsh. And God sure gets blamed in the Old Testament for being a harsh God. No mercy, no, no grace. He's just about throwing lightning bolts. But listen, none of this has happened yet. Everything is a warning to the people for them to turn back from their unfaithfulness to him. I mean, Hosea's boy Jezreel, he would have been a man by the time the punishment began to come around in the valley of Jezreel. And what you, what you see in, in there is, is God, in God's treatment of Judah, you see his heart for his people. 
You see his heart, his loving heart toward them, because he said in Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8, this is what he said. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And you see an example of that in Jonah. Remember, Jonah didn't want to go because he goes, I'm going to tell them, you know, you're coming and they're going to repent. You're going to forgive them. Remember that? That's God's heart. He showed that heart. Judah, listen, Judah was no better than Israel when it came to, to idol worship and to the worship of Baal and all that. When it came to their unfaithfulness, no better than Israel. But because Hezekiah had a heart for God and how, and how he was leading them to, to worship God alone, their downfall didn't happen for another 120 years. 120 years because of one's man, one man's faithfulness, one man's leadership to turn the people back to God. Now, there were nine prophets, if I counted right, nine prophets sent to God's people to warn them over 150 years to come back to God. Nine. Hosea is one of them. Nine times God reached out to his people with his loving arms to plead with them to try to get his bride back from these other lovers that they had given themselves to, but most of the time they did not listen. Well, as believers in Jesus, we too are in a covenant relationship with God. But it's different than the Mosaic covenant of blessings and curses. You know, it's different than that. God made a promise to anyone who believes in his son that if we trust that his death on the cross would provide forgiveness for our sins and that we believe that his resurrection from the grave would provide life for us beyond the grave, that we would be married to him. We would be in a covenant relationship with him and there was nothing that we had to do or nothing that we could do except believe for him to do what he said he's going to do. The new covenant is a better covenant because it all depends on God, not on our obedience. And so since we're in that kind of relationship with God, does God still care about our unfaithfulness to him like he did the unfaithfulness of the people back then? Does he still care? Does he still see us as this bride who is loving other men when we go our own way? When we sin, when we disobey what he said in his word, does he still feel that breaking in his heart? I do believe he does. The sins of a believer, they break God's heart just as much, if not more, than the sins of the people back when Hosea married Gomer. Now, why do I say more? Because I think the Bible tells us that. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. 
For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So just because our sins have been forgiven doesn't mean that God's heart doesn't break over them and that he doesn't take them seriously. And since he takes them seriously, so should we. You know, nothing good comes from sin in your life. Nothing. It's just brokenness. Our relationship with God gets cold and distant. Our relationship with each other gets harmed. Hurts happen. Families get messed up. Jobs get lost. Friends leave. You know, sin is a consumer of life. And it will eat you alive if you Feed it. Giving yourself to it. And so I believe that God will do whatever he has to do to get you to turn from your sin and turn back to him. Whatever he has to do. And we may feel like, man, God, why are you punishing me for my sins? But he is not looking at it that way. He is saying, this is my loving discipline to you, my son, my daughter, because you're going the wrong way. And I need you to come back. So nine times over 150 years, he sent messengers to his people, warning them to turn back. Loving arms reaching out to come Home, come back to me. Is God warning you today to come home? Is He warning you to turn from your sin? Is He trying to get your attention? We cannot think because we're forgiven, the sin stuff doesn't matter in our life and God doesn't care. Revelation chapter 2. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus speaks to his church and to us about life between the advents, between his first coming and his second coming. And that's where we're living. This is what he said to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You've lost your first love. You've given your heart to something or someone else and you're still in this covenant relationship with me. If you don't repent, I'm coming and I'm taking your lamp stand away. Translation, you'll, you'll cease to be a church. There are consequences to our sin. So, 
what happens when we turn and we come back to God? What happens when we come to Him and we confess our sin? He withdraws His discipline. And you receive a loving embrace. There is no punishment to receive. The punishment was already paid. There is no chastisement from God, no belittling with his words. There is no ten steps of penance to get back into his good graces. Just forgiveness, peace, rest, and love. Now you might have some consequences to deal with. But God will be right there with you to help you clean up the mess. That's his heart. That is amazing. It's amazing. But it gets even better because I think the, the amazing in the title of this story comes in the last two verses in the first verse of chapter 2. And in these verses we see the pursuit of The pursuit of love. This is what it says. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. So after all of that unfaithfulness, 800 years of unfaithfulness, after all the ignoring of the the prophets, after all of God's judgment and punishment and exile, and you are not my people, he still gives them a promise here of reversal and restoration and reunion. Starts off with that little word, yet. (laughs) Yet. That verse 10, it harkens back to another covenant still in effect today. When God promised that man named Abraham who can't have children, he said, look up at the sky. You're going to have children, descendants, more than you can count, more than the stars in the sky. And the sand on the seashore, your descendants will be bigger than that. You can't, won't be able to number. God is reminding his people that that is his covenant. It is still in effect today. And he is faithful to keep his promises. He is faithful. So even after that, all of that, he's going to be faithful. And he's going to reverse all these judgments. He's going to restore his relationship with them after they had been scattered and lost everything, even him. He said, you are not my people. I am not your God. And just then, when it comes, you are my people. You are the children of the living God. These people would no longer be divided into the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah. They were going to come together. Where were were they going to do that? In the valley of Jezreel. He was even going to reverse the infamous, you know, Valley of Jezreel. He was going to change it and make it something that was a kingdom-worthy thing. Even the names of Hosea's children would be changed. Not my people to my people, no mercy to mercy. Don't you find that amazing? (laughs) See, God does not love like we do. You know, when when a marriage... 
When, when infidelity ha- happens in a marriage, most of the time the marriages are over and nobody really, you know, blames anybody for that. It's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> but God, he has a marriage like that. And he is still pursuing his bride. He is still wooing, still because of his unfailing, never-ending, committed love. Because remember who he is. He, he is in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. It's, it's who he is. So today, you know, it does not matter. It does not matter how far away from him you may feel like you are today. If you would turn to him, he would be right there behind you, ready to wrap you up in his loving arms. You may feel like you're miles from home, distant from God, but one about face. Right back in his arms. Amazing. He is pursuing you. He is purifying you. He is preparing you. Can you believe that? It is amazing. It is amazing love. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together to close our service. Now, this is the time when uh, the bride of Christ is invited to come to the table of God. And it's a table of remembering. You know, that covenant that we've entered into with God that made possible, uh, it was all made possible because of Jesus, his son, who came into, into our world and lived our life, but never one time was unfaithful to his heavenly father. But even still, he gave himself over to sinful man to die on a cross so the sins of man could be forgiven, could be wiped away. And the grave he was put in, he walked out of three days later, conquering death, saying that if you believe in me, you will never die. You will never die. And then he gave us instructions to take a piece of bread and to take, take a cup and to remember how he made this happen, how he made life with God possible. So if you're here today and you have never gotten married to Jesus, if you've never entered into a covenant relationship with God where you promised to believe in him, to believe that what he's done was sufficient for your sins and that he lives today, if you've never done that, you can do that today when you come forward and get a piece of bread and cup. You come to this altar and all you got to do is say, God, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your friendship. Come into my life. What's going to happen? He's going to call you a beloved child of the living God. And you will never have to do another day without him. Is today the day you need to do that? And for the rest of you, maybe as you're listening to Hosea 1, you're thinking, man, I got some business to do with God today. I invite you to do that. You know, maybe it's just trusting Him with the problems that are shaking your world. Maybe it's turning from sin back to Him. Maybe it's just resting in who He is and what He's doing in your life. You're struggling to wait on God to show up. Pray about those things up here as you're remembering the price that God has paid for you to know him.
feel free to kneel at the altar. You can sit in the front row or return to your seats, however you'd like to do that. Let's pray together. For this is what the Lord himself has said about his table. And I passed it on to you before that on the night when Judas betrayed him, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks to God for it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take this and eat it. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new agreement between God and you that has been established and set in motion by my blood. Do this in remembrance of me whenever you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are retelling the message of the Lord's death. And he has died for you. Do this until he comes again. Jesus, thank you for your pursuit of us. Thank you that you never give up on us. And even when we have let our eyes wander and our bodies wander, you have followed us and are right there, ready to receive us home. I pray today as we come and remember the expensive price that was paid for us to have this promise with you that you might work in our hearts, stir conviction, give us the humility and the ability to say that is amazing love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your amazing love for us today. We pray as, as we go back out to our lives today, we would not go with a strength of heart that says, I'm going to do better. But we would go feeling our weakness, believing that your grace is sufficient for our life and that any progress we make, any faithful day would be because your Holy Spirit is working in us and through us. For you said, Jesus, that anyone who would come to you, you would give rest and that your yoke is easy. And your burden is light. And so we pray that we might live in that today. Your work in us. To be the people you call us to be. For your glory. And our good. In Jesus name we pray. And all God's people said. Amen.